Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear the story of someone strong enough to bear it all. The Naked Podcaster is a representation of freeing yourself, giving you permission to be real in all your quirkiness, baggage, struggles to success, and tragedy to triumph. I'm so excited you're joining the journey. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. With Ami Queerconi, and that's the only time I'm saying your whole name. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I always try to get the pronunciation on this one. I would have been totally off base. So Ami, tell me about your website. I've been on it. Um, it's fantastic. And I've listened to some of your podcasts, but tell me what you do and who you are. Um, well, I feel like I'm a jack of all trades and that just comes from the way, you know, life, you know, is kind of meandered and I've followed it along. Um, where I am today is, um, I describe myself as a marketing and business consultant by day and a self-help vigilante by night. And the, um, the real path forward for me is, is through the, the self-help work. Um, and as a business entrepreneur, like pretty much my entire career, you know, I know that that kind of stuff takes time. And so, um, my day job, uh, I'm out just helping other businesses, mostly small micro businesses, which is a piece of my personality, which is I've always been a cheerleader and a hero and a, you know, number one supporter for people that want to start their own businesses. And then in the weekends and other days and evenings and whatever time I can fill in, I have been on a rigorous pursuit of the truth and getting the information out to as many people as possible about what may be ailing us as not only as a society, as our individual humans, but also how that affects our parenting. Because I, I've had a, a long path forward to coming to terms and understanding, you know, why I ended up being the type of mom that I was. And so the passion that's fueling me, that's kind of the energy driving me today is my, is one broken mom. And it is the storytelling combined with science, combined with research and truth telling about childhood trauma and the types that we've experienced as adults. And the fact of not resolving that appropriately means that we unintentionally pass it down to our kids. And so that's what I'm really, you know, kind of balancing my time with today. So I have so many questions. First, <laughs> I totally get the micro business. So I, my, my day job is I'm a virtual assistant. So online business management. And I'm attracted and what is attracted to me are those small businesses, the brand new solopreneurs, and they have no money. No, not at all. <laughs> so how, is that a money making venture for you or is it? Because um, I structured, yeah, I know, right. And that's actually <laughs> the reason why I decided to, you know, and I say this because one of my biggest clients is a $10 million a year business. So I don't work only with micros, but I really did become connected to, and I call them kitchen table businesses because their headquarters are in their home, just like you are. And we can see your kitchen behind you. Um, and mine's, you know, just outside this door here. Um, and knowing that they don't have resources available to them because I was that person where I was just like, man, so I had to seek out so much information and self-teach. And so everything that I learned about business development and marketing and branding and sales and how to do bookkeeping, all that stuff had to be self-taught because I have an engineering degree. That didn't teach me anything about running a business. And so when I got onto the path of entrepreneurship, I knew that it was a very, you know, self-educating process. And 
but I'm that kind of person, so that's cool for me, but not everybody knows where to find that. And so people get into the, the point of mimicking everybody else because they can't afford to pay for some, you know, tactical advice. So when I started Activity Girl, which is my consulting business in, you know, January of 2017, my aim was, is can I set up a pricing structure that's micro-business friendly? And so what I found was, is that coaching really was the way to be able to do that because I could sit and meet with somebody once a month, maybe twice a month, depending if their budget could afford it. They could afford, you know, $100 to sit down with me and I could get them lined up on here's the, you know, this is what you need to do. Here's what you need to work on. And then that accountability piece for them. And so that was how I found a way to solve the problem for the very, very small business that could afford a marketing professional or social media person, which is you got to run the miles yourself. You're the one who has to place up the sneakers, get out on the road and run it. But I'll stand here and help you get to that path forward and maybe even help you define what that path is. Cause a lot of times people don't even know what the path is that they're going. They're just wide open horizon and stuff. So Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? That's a great, well, I mean, I know, you know, it's a great way to do things, but because when I started up a couple of years ago, I could carve out money, not every month all year long, but I could carve out a little bit here and a little bit there. And so I was very choosy about who I did. I did the same thing. You learn it all yourself and you figure it out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. The other thing is with the self-help thing, I'm hoping from being able to see who you are on your website and stuff that you have some sort of superhero outfit because <laughs> I would have to have a self-help superhero <laughs> outfit. <laughs> I know yeah. that's a fun question, but literally you're like, by night. And I'm like, oh, there's like, got to be a cape involved in this. Right. Yeah. It's, it's more like a, a dark shroud. But um, I do have, my, my daughter teases me about this and I fully admit this, that I, I have like a... Um, you know, this quirky, you know, love for Marvel superhero movies and TV shows and whatever. So I just got my Captain Marvel t-shirt the other day. So I'm pretty stoked to be wearing her, but I, I had been wearing Wonder Woman for a while and never really kind of figured that that was actually my cape. So my, my superhero uniform is typically a graphic t-shirt, blue jeans, and my Chuck Taylors. Um, but I wear that with pride. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, I have a lot of tattoos also, and I know that you do. And I think it just kind of goes, there's something about that personality of a kind of a badass female entrepreneur who's, who's battling to help other women be mm -hmm. better. Yeah. We yeah. have to have a, we have to have a costume. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to go back. Well, I want to, I want to make a statement, something that you wrote to me. Um, you said, however, talking about childhood trauma is really actually hard because people don't know how to do it without pissing off their family or making their parents feel bad. Holy cow. I mean, I didn't write a book for years and then I finally did. And I, I in the foreword, I just wrote, it's not my intention to hurt anyone's feelings. It's not my intention, but I'm not going to not tell the story because I'm so worried about you. But fear stopped that story. And that's, is that what you're seeing the most of? Yeah. Um, when you're in the realm of mental health and mental wellness, um, a lot of people, you know, talk about the stigmas of not wanting to admit that you don't feel good and that maybe you're behaving and you don't understand why because it's somewhere in your brain and you can't put your finger on it. You don't want anybody to think you're crazy. Um, you don't want to admit that you need to go see a therapist or you think you could benefit from somebody to do that. And we have been, I think we spend a lot of time saying, let's remove the stigma. The real stigma though, is that when you get down to the root of all of these problems, you know, and I'm not a therapist, I don't claim to be a therapist. I'm a researcher, I'm an educator, I'm a, you know, a sponge for this knowledge. 
The fact is, is that a lot of it can be and will likely be attributed to a certain collection of childhood experiences that we had and a relationship with parents and what happened to us growing up under their tutelage. And because it comes down to one basic, basic principle, we aren't born with a fully formed brain. The brain learns through life and the brain learns from the experiences that it is subjected to. And it takes that information in on a regular basis and it starts to build the neural pathways that we then use as an adult to govern our choices, our decisions, our actions and everything. And we talk about, you know, one of my guests that I talked to talks about adolescent brain development. And, you know, and the brain starts down at the, at the very bottom, the most primitive pieces of it, and it works up and forward. And we don't get to the front part of our brain until we're like in our 20s. And so all the things that really drive us are all happening as a child. If kids have some adverse childhood experiences, some toxic stress thrown at them, either death, divorce, abuse, and sometimes even the subtle crap that people don't even think about, which is you got a parent that's not emotionally connected to you. Um, you aren't being fed an emotional stimulus. You're not being regarded. You're not learning empathy. And all of that stuff can um, affect you really, really, you know, negatively as you grow up and, you know, into the, um, as an adult. Um, and so, when we get to this adult stage and we're like, man, I still have anxiety and depression. I must be sick. It's my fault. Um, that's one stigma. But the real stigma is, is I have anxiety and depression because I had to deal with emotional neglect. I had to deal with abandonment. I had to deal with the fact that when my dad drank, he hit. And nobody relates that stuff. And if your parents are still alive, oh, well, then you really can't and you don't feel comfortable with going back to them and saying, hey, you know what? I feel a little fucked up. And I think it has to do with how we all live together because they'll be defensive, especially if your parents are emotionally immature, just like any of us. If you come at us with an accusation, we're going to defend ourselves and try to convince you of it. And the more toxic that relationship was as a child, uh, the less satisfaction you're going to get out of having that conversation with your parents about it. And then there's the guilt factor. And in fact, one of the books I'm reading right now is Alice Miller's The Body Never Lies. It's one of the last books she wrote before she passed away in 2010. And that woman does not hold back with making it clear that not talking about our parents and not talking about it in a way that we own and we're honest about the feelings that we have about it is a, one of the many reasons why we never are able to emotionally move forward. And some of us end up with like physical ailments as a result of it. And so the long, short answer of this is that it's really the fact that we are too afraid to examine something that we don't really understand. You know, we wanted to love our parents. We wanted to believe our parents loved us back in return. But the reality is, is sometimes we didn't get what we really needed at the end of the day. And that's what we're dealing with today as an adult. And it may be, and it's likely as it was with me, affecting how I'm parenting my own children until you have that awareness. Yeah, that's very powerful. I didn't address my parents ever. I did write the book finally. Um, but I think because I knew my childhood was fucked up and I knew I didn't know how to parent and I knew it could be different. I came at it from, well, let's figure out how to do a better job moving forward. So where you, you, well, first of all, you got your engineering degree. <laughs> But my you, bachelor's in engineering, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you were pushed into that a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, it's a, it, to me, I always believe it's a blessing. I have no idea how it happened, but I'm grateful that it did. Um, it's also the reason why I think, uh, you know, some of my emotional struggles happened. And that was, you know, I've always been a very sensitive person. 
Um, but I've also always had a brain that was really well adaptable to multiple topics. I handled trauma through writing. Don't, I didn't know it then, but I wrote and I studied psychology even as a kid. I was enamored with the brain and how it worked. But I also happened to be really good in math and science. And so when it came time to, you know, pick a career or to, or to do whatever, I never was supported really, you know, as a, as a career option for me with writing and psychology. Well, you'll never make enough money. And that's what happens when you live in a, a household of scarcity. Like it's all got to be about the money and stuff. And my boyfriend in high school at the time, his brother was an engineer. He was going to be an engineer. And everybody was like, you know, Ami, you need to go be an engineer. So I was like, all right, well, I'll go do this. I am good at those aspects of it. And so I did. I went into the field of engineering and did great. Got a job and worked in it for, for 10 years. Um, never, never knowing or understanding or even being encouraged that there were other possibilities for me. I just, I relented to whatever made everybody happy with me. And it made everyone happy to see me, you know, and I would, you know, one of my uncles actually like gave me a mug that said engineer. I mean, it was like it, the force was out there to, you know, to push me down that field. And I felt like that at 18 years old, I didn't have a choice. I mean, that was the life I grew up in. There were no choices for me. I had to do what everybody else told me to do. So. Okay. But now I'm trying to get, go back a little bit. It's okay. You were really good at it and you really liked it. And it's, it, well, you just said something that reminded me of something else I read either in your email or on your website. You about manifesting. Because mm -hmm. you've got to be big into manifesting. So at that time, you allowed other people to manifest for you. Mm -hmm. Is that more accurate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, because, you know, my choices didn't matter. I mean, that's, that's the message. That was the, that was the life, which is why when I could move out and get the fuck out, I did because I knew my choices were valuable, but it was easier sometimes to stop fighting what everybody else wanted. And then also not having the surety that I was able to make good choices for myself because, you know, that was how I was raised. And in the end, an engineering degree wasn't a horrible thing. However, no. it just wasn't. Now I graduated in 1988. You have to, we have to be close to the same age. Yeah. From high school. I graduated. High school. Yeah. I graduated in 90. So okay. you and I are just off a couple of years. So uh, what people, what it's hard to remember or what some people don't understand is that we didn't have internet then. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I was in psychology and wanted to do journalism. I think that that was probably a really great thing for women with our kind of emotional or how our brains work because it was cathartic. I was healing from it and I, but you don't realize it. And that was exactly what I wanted to do. And I was discouraged because like, what are you going to do? Get it, land a job uh, at National Geographic? Like I wanted to join G Greenpeace, you know? I mean, it was a different world back then. Had I known, had we known then how, what the internet was going to be and how things would change in the future, I would have never let anyone discourage me from journalism. Yeah. But back then we were literally typing out and making photocopies and sending our writing in the U.S. post office mail. People don't understand that. Right. So, I mean, no, you didn't have choices, but also it was a really different world back then yeah. where that, that journalism choice didn't, it didn't make as much sense. I mean, I was a communication psychology major and I just didn't finish it because <laughs> it, it just didn't make sense. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. You did engineering and then talk to me about getting out because I, I love this. I think a lot <laughs> of us. <laughs> this is another generational thing. A lot of us did this. 
Yeah. Oh, you mean getting out of Kansas? And yeah, yeah. yeah. it's Kansas. Like there's yeah. no place like home. <laughs> right. Right. And then, uh, you know, the irony was, um, you know, moving to Seattle, which is the Emerald City. I mean, I felt like I was living like Dorothy's life all over again. So the jokes are never ending, especially when you name your son Oz. Like oh, it's oh, like. God. You know, um, so anyways, and it's not, I always have to tell everybody, it had nothing to do with the Wizard of Oz. It had to do with way too much MTV. That's the honest truth. Um, but I, you know, I found, you know, an opportunity to, uh, you know, I threw myself into school. I threw myself like engineering. Great. If it's going to get me out, I'm going to do it. So I threw myself into school. I, I came of age really getting out of the house and being in that environment in college. Um, the one problem I had, though, was that I was still in a relationship um, with my high school boyfriend, and it wasn't healthy. It was the first of many unhealthy relationships. You know, I'm, his life is totally different now. I haven't talked to him in decades, but at that time, we had two people that had their own sets of childhood baggage and trauma inflicting them on each other. And so, I, you know, I know what was going on. I know the circumstances of it. But I had offers job offers like a full semester because also as you know back then and it's still kind of the case engineering and women like totally not even a thing and i was in the field of architectural engineering which is the construction industry which is even smaller than some of the other engineering fields um i did put my foot down because everyone pushed me or was trying to push me into industrial engineering because that's where more women were and i'm like i don't fucking care if more women are there i like building tree houses so i'm gonna do this piece of it so that that was my one act of defiance of like if i'm gonna do this i'm doing it the way i want to do it and so i got into the field um instead of taking the job offers i had one in chicago i had one in dallas i bought a plane ticket and flew to seattle on my own and I went door to door to engineering firms and said, I want to live here. This is the place I want to be. It's got music. It's got the outdoors. It's got sports teams. It's got everything I don't have. And I found my own job. And so then by the time I graduated, it was, we rushed to get married, got in a truck and drove our asses out here. And I've lived out here in the Northwest now coming up this summer, like 23 years, you know, half of my life now has been as a Washingtonian instead of a, as a Kansan. And, uh, but the ex- first ex-husband um, became an ex after only two years because he wanted to go back. He had still this attachment. And I was like, there's no way I'm going back. I mean, I'm, I got out, like, I don't, I don't want to go back there. I don't see my future there anymore. It's like, I, and so that was like the first shedding, you know, of, of life and stuff and being able to kind of get out on my own. It's really, really hard because a lot of us at that age, I mean, we all have our own baggage of growing up. Even if it's a good upbringing, we still carry some amount of baggage from growing up. It's really hard to be in a relationship that young. I was married at 19, you know, I mean, and, and grow up together mm -hmm. with that baggage and have no skills or clue how to have skills to work through it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think sometimes for me, you know, as I reflect back, you know, it, this is a part of the therapeutic process is, is revisiting and, and, and putting some, you know, truth to experiences. And there's a, a big piece of me that I think that that relationship probably was as impactful to how I would guide and choose future relationships as much as the, as the parental relationship in the home environment, because he and I had met at like 15 years old, um, looking back at him and, and what his experiences were 
you know, he was taking control of his life the best that he could. And it was at my expense. We didn't recognize it as then. I just thought he really cared about me. That's why he was so controlling and, you know, just wanted me to be a good person. And so I allowed, you know, some of the, the emotional things that happened with it and the physical, you know, I was never hit in the relationship, but I sure was grabbed and shook quite a bit in order to, you know, kind of, and when you're going through that also at 15, 16, adolescent brain development, that also has an influence of what you expect all your future relationships to have those, you know, those pieces of it and stuff. And so um, it was, it was a piece of the whole story. So I never look back and go, God, I really wish none of that happened. I'm, I'm truly grateful it did. Cause as we talk about manifestation, eventually I'm, I'm coming to a place that I always wanted to be. And I would not be here if I had not had all these experiences to go through. So yes, I definitely want to talk about manifestation. Um, you, but you worked for 10 years as an engineer. Did you like it? I did. Um, the parts of it that appealed to me that I was actually really good at was the, the elements of the job that were uh, more emotional intelligence based and engineering as a, as a field, you know, is a, a lot of people that feel really good around the, uh, the science pieces of it, the, the predictable predictable nature of it. There's formulas to govern what you do. And if you can follow the formulas, then everything turns out fine. And where I really began to prosper was in the relationship parts of it, you know, whether that was marketing or whether that was having a conversation with an architect and being able to tease out what it was that they wanted from a design. Because I came of age in the engineering field during the birth of sustainable design. And that changed the way buildings were being designed because they had to become more collaborative as a team. They, we were trying to get away from old formulas because the old formulas were antiquated and weren't energy efficient. They weren't resource efficient. They were so many ways that were in defiance of what sustainable design was. And none of the engineers, I wouldn't say none of them, but very few engineers felt comfortable in a collaborative, you know, sit down and, and hash through details. They wanted to be in that structure. And that's where I really started to find my voice in that of like, uh, you know, I, I work really well in this environment. And so I ended up becoming in some ways an interpreter to design teams. Even if I didn't have all the engineering experience as many of my colleagues did, I could sit in the room and I could take and listen to what the architect was saying and re-communicate it back to the engineer on what they needed to do and be that go-between. But because of that, I ended up going to grad school during this moment so that I could get my master's degree in environment and community. I, you know, I found my place in here in this sustainability world and, and knew that it was something I wanted to grow. And it was at that point that I found that the engineering background was going to serve me in an totally different way. And so while getting my graduate degree, I ended up leaving in the engineering field, but then I started a manufacturing company. And so the engineering came with me, but in a totally different way that I never imagined would be my future for like the next 10 years of my life. This is so exciting to me because when I read this, I think it's great to figure out the, the process because you went from an engineering degree to like a business out of your garage and then a bigger garage. So this is where you met your second husband, correct? Yeah, at, at the engineering firm. His dad was actually one of the owners and we had met because he was the IT guy there and we started, you know, I think we were friends for like a couple of years before we ended up being romantically connected. Okay, so you get married and you get your graduate degree. Is that the right order? Yes, it is. I had my son. Um, we had um, our first son, only, only son technically. Um, and it was at the end of, before I gave birth to him is when I decided to quit the engineering job because I had these grand plans of finishing my graduate degree and being a stay-at-home mom during that process because that's what I felt like I needed to do. I needed to embody the mother thing, you know, the earth mother thing, which is don't be a worker, stay home and, you know, 
take care of the kid 100%. And so that's when all, all that happened. But you went from a person who didn't think you would ever want or that you would have kids mm-hmm. to wanting, I mean, that's a huge pendulum swing from thinking, I'm not ever going to have kids. It's really not my gig to, I need to be a stay home mom and nurture this child. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it, it took me by surprise, to be honest with you. Um, you know, reflecting back my, my total disdain for having kids was because I was the oldest of four and a piece of a strong piece of my childhood and in particular, my, you know, my teenage years, once I became old enough to babysit, that was my job. Like that was my job. And in fact, um, you know, throughout high school, I didn't go out. I wasn't allowed to go out on weekends while all my friends were going to parties and living their high school life. My mom wanted to go out and, you know, and so I was stuck at home. And so by the time I was like 18, I'm like, I don't want to see another fucking kid as long as I live because I have been raising children since I was like 12 years old. And I was I was over it. Like, I mean, that was why. So it wasn't this lack of no maternal. It was just like, don't I, you know, and I'd always joke, even after I became a mother, it's like, I love my kids, but I don't love anybody else's kids. Like it was that root of that trauma of that experience of like, I'm just, I'm tired of it. Like, I don't want to be everybody looking at me to take care of everybody else's children. Like that's not what I was made to do. And so when I had met my husband, he was really great with kids and it stirred up these feelings of these maternal feelings. I, you know, that were, to be honest, were genuine. I just, I had played roles and I just didn't know that I had that bad taste in my mouth that had nothing to do with wanting to be a mother. But yeah, I think I swung really far in the other direction, but was completely didn't have tools to do any of it. I just had desire to do it. And that's where going all the way in one way, was like, whoa, 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 we need to come back a little bit. And so while I was in getting my master's degree, is when I invented Squawk Mountain Stone, this recycled content countertop product, and then started my own business. And that's where, you know, my path of entrepreneurship was, well, I can be home with my kid and I can actually do business. So I started to kind of frame a life that allowed me to do both of those things. Where did the idea for the countertops come from? I mean, how did that, that just seems so random to me. Yeah, Which it is. It's pretty random. Your personality that made it. it I knew. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you know, it is a part of my personality. My my personality at the root is a problem solver, and so it came as a suggestion from an instructor. And we had to do a paper in um in grad school in one of my economics classes, and it was about import substitution which is if we could rethink of our local economies in a different way and say, what kinds of products do we buy right now that are actually imported in from China or from the next state over or whatever, and we could develop a product that could be done or made in your own community, what would that look like? And having given the fact that I worked in the building industry, my mind was on building materials. Mm -hmm. One of my instructors at some point in time had been talking about a, a product called Papercrete, which is just basically shredded up newspapers and water and cement. And these guys down in the Southwest were using just crazy tanks and stuff. And so it was like, okay, well, what if that could be turned into a product? You know, the the engineering part of my brain, like even though engineering wasn't my first choice, my brain does work that way. So it wasn't a bad choice for me. So I ended up coming up with this paper and, and honestly, I did this whole paper and I came up with a business case for it. And while everybody talked about a product, I actually wrote a business plan for it because it's like, when I throw myself into education, I throw myself into education. I'm not going to be the passive student. It's like I'm paying for this education. I'm milking every you know, penny out of it. And so I threw a business plan together and literally thought to myself, if this is such a fantastic idea, then why isn't anybody doing it? 
And so then I just decided to test it. And so during nap times, I just went out into my garage and I started making my own samples. I built my own mixers out of drills and whatever else I could do. And I just started down that pathway. It, it gave me something intellectually stimulating. It gave me a problem. It kept my mind peaked while I was also, you know, staying at home with, a, with an infant that didn't talk to me all day, you know? And so it, it, that's how that actually ended up evolving to a place where it became, uh, I became consumed by it. I was like, I think this really can work. I think I can actually make this happen. And so then I just kind of kept pressing on. Divine intervention, I have no idea. But like I said, it became a, a big piece of my life and it would end up dictating like the next 10 years you know, of my life. So you moved from the house and the garage and makeshift drills <laughs> to a bigger garage. And at, I mean, your business started taking off. You did it for 10 mm -hmm. years. You made I did. countertops. How, how surprising was that? Or was it not surprising to you? You just really embraced the fact that you could stay home and still be intellectually stimulated. I mean, that was the balance for you, correct? It was. It was. What I, I discovered gratefully early on was that I'm not that stay at home mom, you know? I, and so and I did that without an apology to myself. You know, it's like, I know who I am. I know what, I'm, what I am made of and I, I can't do this. And so that was an early realization. It wasn't met with a lot of support originally, um, but it was, you know, pe you know, eventually people succumbed to it and said, well, this is what we're gonna have to deal with. <laughs> so, um, and so there was the, well, let's kind of keep letting this go. The, the thing that got support was the fact that I wasn't being entirely altruistic. I was looking to make this a viable business that you could actually make money doing. And to be surprised, no, I, I wasn't surprised. I, I expect to succeed. I don't expect the path to be one way. I have learned, and again, that's the upside to some of the life experiences that have downsides to them. The upside was that I know how to solve a problem. I know how to fight. I know how to survive. Throw it in my way. I'll find a way around it. It's the core of being the engineer. It's the core of problem solving and navigating as much as I can through relationships and through everything. So it didn't come as any surprise to me to be able to have evolved it, but it did, certainly did surprise other people because other people don't have that mindset that makes you really good at being an entrepreneur. And I think if you look at entrepreneurial histories and the people that really thrive in those, you know, in those environments, honestly have a lot of childhood trauma behind them. <laughs> and they've known how to actually be a survivor through that, to be, to be honest. That's a great point, actually. Um, yeah, you figure out how to navigate your own stuff. So navigating other stuff really isn't that scary. Not no. nearly as scary as the baggage. Right, right. So you have 10 years into this and you're, you have a second child. Mm -hmm. And how torn were you? I'm trying to figure out that I know that that marriage ended. So the reason why it ended and how long you continue to do the countertops after that, and you went from being a stay at home mom and running your own business, but that shifted a lot with that divorce. Yeah, it did. And it actually shifted during the marriage. Um, my, my ex's mother-in-law basically was called in and to help out. And so the balance became, you know, for me to be able to work full-time. I actually went to work full-time. It was after my daughter was born and we ended up uh, moving into, I moved my business into a shop 
uh, in Woodenville, which was, you know, about 20 miles away, but closer to her so that I could actually take the kids off of there because the business was growing and I was doing as much of it by myself because that's the kind of mentality that you also have is that I can solve all this on my own. I don't need help from anybody, but you know, eventually it got to a place where I did need help. I had friends that helped me out on weekends and, um, and especially when we moved the shop, um, I was actually pregnant. So there in the first few months of the business in the shop, I was, you know, like waddling around with a baby in my stomach. Um, but I did end up, you know, committing to it being full-time ish. I'd say maybe a day or two at home, you know, three or four days, you know, with, uh, working, you know, full days and stuff like that. Um, but that, that shift isn't what, was the demise of the of the marriage um the unfortunate thing is that timing really kind of like played against me here in so many ways and that was the economy you know i'm into the business you know seven years and then all of a sudden there's a recession everywhere and the industry that was hit the hardest was the building construction industry and in the process of that all falling apart you know my my husband who wasn't entrepreneurial really did resent the fact that I spent a lot of time working on the business and wasn't making money. It was costing us sometimes money. I had employees that we had that were necessary to do the job. And so when the economy started to fall apart and, you know, I, like I said, I had a six figure option to sell my company to one of my distributors and I, no joke, 30 days later, they were looking at bankruptcy. That's how fast the bottom just bombed. So my husband's like, well, maybe we shut this down. And I've talked with other woman entrepreneurs and they get this feeling. My company that I birthed from, not even a, it didn't even exist. The product didn't exist. The business didn't exist. It, it's like bringing a new life into this world. And it was, we'll just walk away and let it go. I'm like, you just, you just asked me to kill something that I came out of me in every way, shape or form. And I just, that's when I was like, no, I, I, that's not even an option for me. I was angry. I was resentful. And then out of the blue, another business that was failing contacted me to say, hey, maybe there's safety in numbers. Maybe we should team up to kind of ride through this storm together. Can we blend, you know, they were trying to do what I was doing, but they were like two to three years behind me. And, um, and so I made that decision in late 2009 to partner, you know, with somebody else just to survive it because I was unwilling to let go, you know, of everything that I'd put into it. And that was the beginning of the end really for the, the marriage and the relationship, because that partnership was one of the most toxic situations I found myself in that unfortunately I was doomed to repeat until, you know, I kind of got my shit together, you know, several years later. I forgot about the recession. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I forget it's kind about of a big deal for me then. <laughs> no, it was a big deal for us too. I mean, yeah. it was a big deal for pretty much everyone. I just, the timing, I couldn't figure out what the connection was with the end of the business. I knew there was a partnership, but I, I completely did not take into account the recession, which makes so much sense. So the business relationship was what was toxic and that was kind of the undoing of the marriage or yeah, it was part of it. Oh, totally. The business relationship, and it's funny because at the time and after I got out of that relationship, um, my blame was cast on that person, you know, that this person somehow was the poison, the toxin and ruined everything for me. And, um, and that's where, you know, at some point in time, your improvement in life begins when you start to understand the difference between self-blame and accountability, two totally different things. And at that point in time, 
Um, it was what I thought was my first exposure to, you know, a, a narcissistic person. You know, I had never felt or I never thought that I'd ever had been projected upon. Um, he, he used fear and screaming and yelling as coercion tactics. If I played my role, everything was good. If I asserted myself, then it wasn't. And it was, it was, I mean, it broke me. I mean, it wore me down emotionally. Now, could I have survived it? Absolutely. If I came home and had somebody there that was like, dude, I've got you, right? I've got you. I understand. I see this. I see what you're going through. But what happened was that I came home to silence. I came home to an obligation that it was my fault I was an entrepreneur. It was my choice to do all those things. Therefore, I should be responsible for dealing with all of it all on my own. And there was no space for me. There was no, no safety there. And then on top of that, the, the, the kids, and I say this with complete transparency, and I have been attacked by people for being this honest about it, but the kid part of it was starting to draw back out of me that feeling that I had when I was sick of fucking taking care of kids. Because when I came home, there was no release for me, no one to give me that space, that emotional space that I needed to, to deal with this, this abuse that I was, you know, taking care of. It was bad during the day for me. I'm not like an overdramatic person. One afternoon, the screaming and yelling directed at me by my partner was so harsh that my phone started getting text messages and phone calls from my employees checking to make sure I was okay. That was our reality in our life. So when you come home and you can't talk about that with somebody and they just don't care about that, and at the same time, you've got two kids that don't understand that need you, I just, I broke. I mean, and that was, that was it. So... We probably could have made it as a, as a husband and wife, but he wasn't, he wasn't listening. And it's not his fault. I mean, it's like, I'm, you know, not making those, I'm not casting blame at him either. At the end of the day, it was me. Like I was always a broken person inside of it. Just, I'd put myself in these situations and was attracted to them to some really twisted, screwed up reasons. I don't even think it's twisted and screwed up. I just think that you do it inadvertently without realizing that you're repeating a pattern that you don't even understand. And unless you're really introspective or admit that you need therapy or, or whatever it is, I mean, mm -hmm. it's different for everybody, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, it's, or somebody points them out in a way that you can listen. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. sometimes having stuff pointed out is not always a great thing. No, no, it's not. <laughs> but, I, I mean, but I've had it in situations in my relationship now where something was pointed out and I was like, holy shit, that is me and I am doing it. And you're totally right. And you know, I don't know what would happen if I did it a different way because that's scary. Cause this is predictable, even though I don't mm -hmm. like it, it's predictable. And we tend to continue to do what we don't like because it's predictable mm -hmm. and anything else is terrifying. Yeah. Right? And that's the, that's the brain. That's the that's training the in the brain right. that we got. The brain always goes to the familiar. And that's one of the big messages that a lot of people don't get. No, you're not choosing to do this consciously. Your right. brain is making that choice for you. And your brain is guiding you to the things it learned how to do and how to, and the types of people it, it was developed around because that's what's familiar. Why, why does it choose the familiar? Because the familiar, believe it or not, even when it comes to abusive relationships is safer than the unknown. And that is like the biggest, and that's why people go, yeah, why would I choose to be around abusive people? You're not, but your brain is putting you there. And until you have that snap out of it, you know, and for me, I would choose the same relationship that broke me again 
And it wouldn't be until I found myself literally seven years later going, holy shit, this looks a lot like what I just dealt with. And it was like, okay, hold on. You're the common denominator of me. Yeah. <laughs> Right. You know, and, and being a sensitive person and being reflective, you know, I was able to come to that like, well, okay, breaks, you know, it's time for you to really do some soul searching, you know, and to dig in and, and do that piece of it. But it was, yeah, it's like, I see too many familiar patterns here for myself. And as the engineer and as the problem solver, I'm looking at data and the data is telling me that it's time to take a look really hard and long at what's going on. Okay. Now, when did the writing piece start coming back in? So you divorced and your business fell apart. Mm -hmm. You walked away from the business and the marriage, correct? Was it about the same time frame? Oh, yep, it was. The business, it, the business died the, uh, within the course of 2010. And then I walked out in 2011. So almost like a year after, you know, I'd moved out of my house, got divorced from my husband. It was 12 months later and the business was done too. The business went on without me for two more years before it just eventually died. I mean, it was like, that was an inevitability. Um, but I just was like, I'm done. I'm out, walked away from that as well. And, um, and, you know, walked into, because I felt the safety of a relationship, a new relationship around me thinking, well, I'm just going to, you know, I can follow this path over here and, and get some relief from all of this stuff. And so that was, yeah, 2011. And you became a weekend parent. I did. Was, that yeah. was a huge shift. And well, the weekend parent, to be honest with you, when I divorced my husband, yeah, that's when it was. We sat down and had a conversation and he could see that I needed the break. And he's like, I'll, I'll take the kids. I'll be the custodial parent. You, and, and we came up with this, parent, you know, this relationship where it was like I had them every other weekend, but he you know, was the primary caregiver for them since you know, 2010. Going from a stay-at-home mom running your own business to that is a another big shift. So you felt relieved by that at this point, though. I did. I mean, I I, I just and I know this is so hard for people to um, to get, and um, because they they can't possibly see how a mom could do this. But by the time 2010 rolled around. Um, I, I just had to be out. And, um, you know, a lot of the ways that I was coping just wasn't healthy for them. And it was so confusing for me because here I was at 38 years old and I was repeating what I had lived through as a kid and I didn't want to. And I felt like I was all completely powerless to me. I got like, I'm on a train I never wanted to be on, but here I am doing exactly what had happened to me. My mother was 38 years old. She divorced for her third time. We were being hucked around. And I was like, I had committed myself to never being that person by trying to adopt a new role. So that while the wanting to be the mom was honest, I was playing a piece that I didn't have all the tools to play, you know? And so I was fracturing and not knowing exactly where I needed to step in. But, you know, I coped in so many unhealthy ways and it was, it was the best thing to, for me and for the kids. I mean, the trauma that they had to go through with that, I, I can't even, I can't even do enough to make up for it except for what I'm doing right now. But I, I'm afraid that it would have been way worse if we had, you know, tried to follow norms and mom becomes the caregiver and dad's the weekend person, it, it worked for us. And I've, like I've said, I've been called a piece of shit for making that choice. And I, I don't care. Like, 
not only should you not care, I mean, people should respect the fact that you can admit what you're, where you're falling short and look at it and do what's in the best interest of everyone else, even with that stigma. So they can fuck off. I mean, yeah, yeah well, that's, that was, that's been my, that's been my attitude about it. Um, but relief doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. I mean, it was, it, it, I was liberated from all of it and it wasn't just the parenting piece. I wasn't just like, Oh my God, now I don't have to be a mom, but I will tell you that I, for a period of years, was able to pretend I wasn't a mom and that made me happy. I, I had so much, I realized that there were so many things that I didn't like about it that was confusing for me because then when I'd see my kids, I love my children, you know? And so a part of it was I was better to them on the weekends I had them than if I had been always with them all the time. I just, I couldn't hold my shit together. It's interesting that there's not a stigma for the man, but there is for a woman in this situation. I think that's what bothers me so much. My ex-husband, I remember looking at him once and saying, I would rather have you be an outstanding parent part of the time, whatever that looks like to you, even if it's every other weekend, than a really shitty parent and doing it 50-50 with me. And I, and, I, and I told him, I can't make that choice for you and I don't know where you're at, but it would be great for your relationship with the kids to spend less time that's good than more time that's not. And he chose to spend more time that's not until the kids took up for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be kids standing up for themselves and alerting authorities that it's not a good situation. That should have never been the case. But God forbid he admit he couldn't do it and just mm -hmm. take less time. So I don't understand where the stigma comes from and why it's worse for women. Because had he done that, he could have had a really good relationship with his kids, and he does not. Mm -hmm. And instead, he has a bad relationship with his kids, tried to do too much because it was all about the image and what people would think. Well, what do people think now? So you could have kept your kids and done it the primary way that most people, and nobody would have faulted your husband for being that part-time, right? At right. all, because that's all. society. And you could have destroyed your kids. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And myself in the process. Right. The, the, the thing that a lot of people don't know, most people don't know, is that I was, I was so, so torn up um, before I left that, um, you know, I would medicate myself. And it wasn't just alcohol. I mean, it, it was easy to get Percocet. And that's not something that many people know that towards the end of it, I'd put the kids to bed. I'd be left at home alone to take care of them, which was a terrible theme of my life, you know, because my husband would want to go do things with his friends. And I had the obligation to sit home and do nothing except to watch for them. And I had described it as my life became one of those things that as I walked in the door, I felt like everyone was throwing tennis balls at me. Like it was an unrelenting barrage of everyone else's things except my own. And, you know, a couple of nights I'd sit there if, after I got the kids to bed home by myself, pop a Percocet and just numb out everything. And it was like, that's when it was like, this is it. I've got to go. Like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this to myself. Um, and I certainly can't do these to the kids around me. And I, you know, I deserve, I deserve more than this and better than this. And they all do. And thank God yeah. that you were willing to admit it. So you walked away from everything, started a new relationship, did the part-time parenting. And then, so where did the writing come in? And then also I want to tie in, then you became the full-time parent again. Yeah. 
and it didn't go well and then it did. Right. Um, so I ended up choosing another shitty relationship. And, you know, I've, I've gotten over the guilt of, you know, wanting to be kind and saying, well, you know, it's whatever. I know I, I'm owning an, the honesty of what it was. I found another emotionally unavailable person that I, you know, had gone through boot camp and already knew how to deal. My brain was attracted to it. My brain was also attracted to all the intensity. And one of the things that I would learn later, but I didn't have the language for it at the time, was that I had grown up confusing intensity for intimacy. And so the most exciting person came into my life and I just followed it all the way through and, and was in that for six, almost seven years until I started to, and I, I think this is 2016, the kids were doing great on those weekends that they came with me. We were finding a really good balance. And at the same time, you know, their dad was struggling. He was struggling with them as teenagers, you know, independent thinkers, you know, asserting. And at some point in time, their relationship, you know, in their household became toxic. And I thought to myself, I really am different now. I wasn't fixed at this point, but there was a piece of me that was evolving that said, I really do want my kids again. But I also recognized what I was in. I was in a situation with another person who I suspected didn't have capacity to be a parent. I, I, and I knew that. that the, the, the struggle sometimes some of us go through is we are governed by the emotions sitting in the back of the brain that are driving these unconscious decisions. And we're fighting with our prefrontal cortex, the part of us that's learned how to analyze and assess and see situations and make good decisions. And we are constantly tumbling back and forth between those two parts of the brain. And I was going back and forth quite a bit on a regular basis. I need to get out of this relationship. I don't know how. And I don't know how is the unconscious drive of you don't want to, um, don't abandon this. You don't give up on this. You can fix it. You can do this. You can survive this with, this can't be fixed. I've got to go. And when you bring in the fact of now I've got these kids, I miss them. They're now doing, they're living this piece of the life. They were getting into the part of the life that I felt the most need in my own life. And I wanted to be there for them in that phase of their life, not knowing that that was really what was really kind of driving me. And sure enough, by about early 2017, their dad, they, they, the, their relationship was blowing up. The kids, my daughter was dealing with depression. She started cutting. We were concerned she was actually going to kill herself. My son completely checked out. He went from being a great student to just not following through on anything. Um, those are, you know, signs of uh, his, you know, noncompliance was just being, you know, was making it worse. And their dad said, I can't do this anymore. And, I, and he's like, if you can't take them in me, then, you know, I'll see if my parents can. And I was like, there's no fucking way I'm abandoning my children twice. Because at this point in time, it wasn't about me. It was knowing that I can't do those to those kids. Those kids cannot have both of their parents abandon them. And so I said yes. And then I was ready for the consequences. And so in May, at the end of uh, their school year, they moved in. I didn't really tell my my, my partner at the time that it was forever. And then we started talking about it and I had hoped that he'd say yes, but I was also prepared for him to say no. And that was going to be a hundred percent okay with me if he said no. And by July it was, no, I don't want this. And it was like, well, I'm not saying no to them. And that was the beginning of the end of our relationship. The kids were the safety valve that I needed. And 
I made the choice completely to take them in 100% with no fear for myself. But I still didn't know the broken pieces of me because once I had them, I was still dealing with, um, you know, the, I don't have enough, where's my space? Oh my God, I don't have my room to, to, to deflate from the constant need that they had. And these were kids that needed things. They had just been kicked out of their home. They, you know, had to deal with that. They had to change schools, get new friends at a very important time in their life. And those kids needed a stable adult around them. And I was doing my, you know, my damn best to be that stable adult. And then I just didn't have my own relief valve to be able to let all of that, you know, holding your shit together, you know, and it was, you know, five or six months of really struggling still going, I, I don't get why this still feels weird. Why? Um, and there was a, a moment in December, which is really when all the lights in the, in the theater started to go on and I could see the stage I was on. I was at a Christmas or a dinner with the kids at Denny's, you know, and my daughter leaned in in an affectionate way and put her head on my shoulder and it made me bristle and it, and it made me feel like that it was an invasion um, to me and I didn't know what to do with it. And, um, and I knew at that moment that that's fucked up and I need to figure that out because I don't want that feeling because I don't want her to feel like I don't love her. And so um, it was around that time that I was like, I really need to get this sorted out because I can't, I can't do this for myself and I certainly can't do this for her. I can't, I can't abandon her again if I don't get this figured out. And that was December of 2017. And that was when there was a complete watershed moment and my life changed just dramatically from that point forward. The fact that you can admit this, I know it's emotional, is makes everyone else feel less alone. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to honor that. Um, because I think it would be rare as a parent myself to sit here and smile and think it's great all the time. And, and it's not, and I don't always like it. And, and I think just being okay with that and then evaluating it and determining what you can do to move forward. And I really appreciate that from you. So in the last year, there was a point also when you went back to your parents' house and you were reading your own books. You were reading self-help books. You were, tr you were really, really diligently trying to get your shit together. Mm -hmm. And then also you were rereading things that you had written, your old journals. Yeah. When you were in middle school, elementary and all of that stuff. So tell me about the light switch that went off for you and what you did to completely change it. I was still pursuing, um, you know, from say September, 2017 until December, I was pursuing this understanding of why I was finding myself in narcissistic codependent relationships. Um, I, I hadn't gotten to a place of understanding that they, this wasn't something that just happened to me. What I believed was, is that I was a magnet, you know, that there was some posturing that I was putting off that was attracting all these terrible people to me. And I needed to understand what that was. I was like most people 
in that my past and my painful childhood memories and experiences had nothing to do with what I did today and had no bearing on my decisions and my unconscious choices. And I was arrogantly like, you got to leave that shit behind you. Like, just don't even worry about it. Don't even think about it. And so I'm reading these books about narcissism because I'm also recognizing in myself, I was behaving narcissistically in my relationships. So at some point it was narcissism was something that happened to me to then also saying, you know what, actually you get very self-involved, you get very defensive of your position, you get manipulative, you know, and why is that happening? And so December 18th, I was reading a book um, by a, a therapist named Wendy Berry. And I was like three or four chapters into it and it had to do with narcissism. And there were literally two words, childlike and powerless. And in the most amazing way possible, I like, I don't know, aneurysm stroke. I'm not sure what it was, but there was a flash, like an instantaneous popping into my brain, the memory a, an experience that happened to me when I was six years old. And it came to me because when I read Childlike and Powerless, I knew from that moment forward that that was the beginning of everything. And that memory um, became the foundation of everything that happened. I mean, it was almost like once you see that piece of it, all the puzzle pieces and the locks all fell into place. And I, I actually, I closed the book. I put it down. I paced the house and I cried and I cried and I cried because I finally understood. I never respected childhood trauma. I never understood it. I never equated it. I never got it. And here I was finally, the answer was like, I mean, finally you're there. You're nothing's going to be the same. And what happened was, um, I am dramatic. I got on Facebook and I just said, here's the day. This is the day my life changed. And I left it at that. And then I didn't touch social media for three days. My kids were out of town with their dad and I actually didn't have to travel. I had a case of all my journals and I knew that because I had that awareness, I needed to, I needed to go revisit myself and I needed to really put all those pieces together. And I sat down and it took me three days to read four years worth the journals. And when I got into like 12 years old, I journaled every single day. And so I had a detailed playbook of what happened to me between pretty much the age of 11 to 15 years old. And I saw a girl that was um, lost and misunderstood. Um, I saw and got to reread my exchanges with my parents, my mother, my classmates, I got to see into the brain of um, this very, very lonely young woman who kept saying, someday people will see me. Um, I had became determined to be famous because that was how I figured someone would finally pay attention. Um, and it was, it was disarming. And it was coming out of that 
that I knew really then and there that everything I did today as a parent was affecting my kids right now. And I took a twofold path. One was fix a me so that a me can be happy and finally get the success that she really wants. Success in terms of just feeling like not failing and repeating and recycling old, you know, you know, shit behaviors. But at the exact same time, getting her shit together in a way she's never done before so that her kids never have to be sitting down at 46 years old and rehashing what fucked them up and why they're still not where they're at. And that was probably the fiercest act of motherhood I have ever taken, which was to go, you're getting your ass in therapy. That's how you're going to do this. You're going to do this with somebody who's going to guide you through it because it's going to get really fucking hard here for a bit as you dig in and you change. And so in January, I started after the holidays were over. It was like, I went in and I was seeing the therapist once a week. I see her, I still see her like every other week stay. But I was finally committed to doing this in a way because I finally had language. I understood all of it. And, um, and that's when all the, you know, like I said, literally all the pieces started to come together for me. And, and when you get to that place, you're just like, life will never be the same again. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. No kidding. How did you rectify the relationships with the two kids? Because in this process, they've been back and forth and they're struggling with their own stuff. You want to remove the 46 year old having to deal with their childhood shit. So bridging that gap seems like Grand Canyon-esque to me of, you know, you're healing yourself, which we all need to do. And you're getting into self-care, you're writing, you're, I mean, God, you journaled like that all those years. What a phenomenal thing. That's phenomenal. Um, I, I, I don't even have words for that at that age that you did that. And thank God that you did. Um, but now you're healing yourself, which is important to be a better parent. So there's that piece of it. And then there's going back for your kids. Now you're not going back from 46 to six, you're not going back 40 years, but you're going back five or 10. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about bridging that gap with them. Cause there's gotta be a lot of raw honesty involved in that with yeah. the kids. We, um, you know, one of them is, you know, having some conversations with them, but realizing that they need less talking and they need being seen. Um, that when they're hurting, that you're there for them because that matters the most out of anything. And so showing up in a way that I was able to be that stabilizing force because of recognizing that that's not what I had. I had, you know, a fear, um, I, you know, at, through therapy, we identified that I had experienced PTSD and that was a little bit of some of the anxiety that I actually felt while I was growing up in the depression and the uncertainty and stuff. And, and that came from a fear of abandonment and showing up every day for my kids knowing, hey, the, this is the big thing driving me. So when they are hurting, just be there. And sometimes it's making them talk and sometimes it's not at all. It wasn't easy. In March of that year, you know, it's not even a year since the kids have lived with me. My daughter was still struggling um, with, you know, depression and, and this changeover because she, her and her dad probably had the worst in terms of their interactions. She's an emotional person and he didn't want to have to, you know, he's his, his dealing with emotion and I'm not judging him right now and he's still around. I doubt he'll listen to this. Um, but I, I don't want to be sensitive and, and diplomatic here, but they, they didn't connect emotionally very well. And that left her reeling in a way that I recognized by reading my own journals. 
And in March, um, one of her friends, her best friends at her old school had attempted suicide and was hospitalized. And my daughter was having difficulties handling all of that. And, and unfortunately with teen suicides, they do cluster. And there was a real fear that she was actually going to, to do something again. So I really stayed vigilant with her. And one night she ended up actually grabbing pills out of the medicine cabinet. She didn't take any of them, but she really thought long and hard about doing it. And that pushed us into, you know, me getting a call the next day at school. And I'm, I'm swimming. Like, I'm only two months into therapy. I'm doing my best, but I'm not, like, miraculously healed here. I'm dealing with the financial fallout of now being single parent, two kids, you know, and having the, you know, another business, you know, that was supporting me come apart because of my partner. And when we're in the hospital, that's when, like, the next piece has kind of fell into place, which was recognizing that she still needed to be heard and she needed to be seen in a way that we're not used to dealing and engaging with our teenagers about. And so I still do that today. I still learn about that today, you know, through therapy and stuff like that. I learn about it by talking with other people, but it's not easy. And every day I'm assured that just being there is going to be vastly different for them than what it was for me growing up. Like I don't have to do anything extraordinary. There's no gestures. I can't undo it. But because of where they're at in their life and their age, as long as they know that there's a stable center and that I don't ask anything from them. That's the other piece of it is there's no demands placed on my kids. I don't, I, they don't need their obedience. I don't even need them to be perfect and lovable all the time because dear God, they're teenagers. They're not lovable all the time, you know, but what I do need to know and make sure that they understand is that even in their most unlovable they're not going to push me away. And I still get that with my daughter. Sometimes she's like, well, maybe I just need to go back and live with dad. And all that is, is her testing the waters of whether or not I'm going to give her up or I'm going to pull her in close. And, and some of the easiest parenting things that I've done is that when, you know, when she says something like that is kiss her, hug her and tell her I'm never letting her go. And she settles back in and all those small things make a huge difference because it's ultimately what the kids, that's all they they need us they need us to love them and make them feel secure and that we aren't we aren't unshaky and unsteady and that also means through this therapeutic process not sharing anything with them like they don't they don't get to see the raw bloody pieces that i'm going through because that's too much for them to handle they can't you know and i'm not hiding that but that's not it's not developmentally appropriate for them you know they're not adults they're, and it, it's not their problem i mean i remember my ex-husband saying um Oh, I must have gotten anger from my dad, who was a very angry, abusive man. His dad, that, that's not what you look at your kids and tell them. Right. <laughs> they don't give a shit and they shouldn't because you still made a decision regardless of where it came from. They don't need to know your baggage or your past. What about apologizing for their past? Um, for one, forgiveness really doesn't cure anything. Uh, to be honest, it, I think forgiveness is one of those things. And I know there are people who are like, well, but it allows you to put it in the past. It allows you to repress how you might actually feel about everything. Um, I have apologized with that said to them, but that doesn't undo. My, my commitment to them is not asking for them to forgive me for what happened in the past, but letting them know how I intend to live my life with them today and what I will be doing for them from this point forward. Because that is what they need to know. I, I don't want them to feel like they have to forgive me in return and repress what happened to them. 
you know, I, I am a feeling sensitive person. That's what made sometimes the things that happened to me hard, harder than other people. Um, and why I felt, you know, ironically, I'm in a black box right now, but I felt like that's how life was for me. I grew up in a black box where I had to keep everything inside. And so I let them know that it, they are entitled to feel whatever they need to feel good and bad and to keep giving them that safe space to be able to do that. And that means that sometimes they will be allowed to tell me how much I hurt them and I'm not going to demand forgiveness for it. And I'm not going to be blind to think my apology was enough. Good for you. So now I think we've connected the dots about <laughs> one, why writing is so important to you. It always was so important to you. Mm -hmm. Writers, you know, if you look in the history of writers, writers are also, if we talk about entrepreneurs and writers, there's a lot of trauma in there. And it was how I was able to speak when I wasn't being heard. Um, and it was, you know, the journaling was a piece of it. I wrote stories all the time. I wrote poems all the time. I mean, I was expressive through writing because I could, and it was, it was a catharsis. I'm blessed that I love it. You know, it didn't become a tool for me that I didn't like. I studied it because I loved being able to tell stories and I loved reading too, because I liked hearing other stories. And I think that that's a big, uh, you know, developer and empathy, you know, being able to read and get into the brain of other people and stuff like that. But my writing um, is very telling at that time. All of my characters, their mothers were dead and their fathers were removed, all of them. And if I wrote about myself, you know, as a, as a fictional character, my characters died. My, my, they were young girls dying. And so that was a part of that three-day weekend, which was really incredibly sad that at some point in time, nobody saw that. Like I wrote all of that for the world to see and nobody ever connected that that was where I was and what was going on in my life. And today it's like, I don't, I'm not mad that nobody saw that because I saw it. I mean, at the end of the day, I had a trunk full of stuff because the person who needed to see that was me. Yeah, you know, amen to that. And now you have built a podcast and a blog and a business to help women. And it's in such a different way, um, not get past your childhood or deal with your, it's really sh showing up in a different way, a different perspective to be better parents for their kids. Yeah. I, to me, you know, my, my trigger, you know, we talked about superhero costumes and I, I, I've been wearing that, you know, from six years old, my, my action gene was clicked on. Um, I had to stand up and fight for myself. And I've been doing that for 40 plus years. And part of that was not being afraid. And I knowing that there's fear that inhibits us from being able to improve. And so my mission was, I know that not all of this information is digestible to people. You know, a lot of the reading that I did is research. And as a psychology student yourself and as somebody in the field here, like a lot of it's written in a way that you just, it's incomprehensible or it doesn't connect dots. There's no relationship to it, to, you know, life. And I figured that if I wanted to know this information, other people would want to know it too. And, you know, presumably. So my mission has been to I'll do the work, you know, I'll read through the books, I'll digest the white papers for you, I'll bring in the experts, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be that interpreter again like I was back in the day when I was interpreting the engineers and the architects communicating to each other. I'm back in that role of saying, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll bring in all of this stuff for you 
and we'll talk about it in a way that you, as the regular human out there living your life, will be able to understand it. And that's been the feedback that I've actually gotten is that it's been easy to listen to the shows because they aren't being talked down to. Mm -hmm. And they're also, they're designed intentionally to be a place without judgment. I don't want, I want to be able to show that we can talk about trauma and not do it in a way that we're pointing fingers and getting pissed off at, you know, parents or whatever, because I could sit my mom in this room and interview her and she could tell me about her trauma and then she could sit down with my grandparents and find out about their trauma. I, I do know that it's something that's passed on and we all are doing the best that we can with what we were given and shown. And that's not the point. The point is not to make excuses for that. The point is, is to recognize that in a safe way and to change that, to say we have to talk about it. it it's going to be unflattering. It's going to be uncomfortable. And podcasting in a way is a, a, having a private conversation and you can listen to it and you don't have to tell anybody you're listening to my show. You, you can deal with this on your own if you're too embarrassed or afraid to be able to bring it up and make it a public discussion. And I'm the type of person that... I know that I can do this, that I can be raw and honest, that I can take an arrow or two from that raw and honesty, and I, I'm not going to back down from that because somebody needs to do it. And I, if, I'm, if I'm the one that was made to do this, then this is what I do. Um, I'm not trying to be some sort of martyr. <laughs> I don't plan on dying from doing this. I plan on this helping other people because not everybody can do it, and they do need to feel like I, like I said, it's been my whole life. You know, somebody, people need heroes to be able to help get them through because we're not all made that way to do that. And I'm not saying I'm doing anything particularly heroic. I'm just doing the way that I was gifted with the talents and the abilities and the, and the, um, the mindset for it. I love it. And we're going to end it right there. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Jen. Thank you for taking the time to get naked with us. If you'd like to bear it all with me, get in touch. Your story is unique and valuable. Let's show it off.